0: The ministry of Graceview Church. In South Haven, Mississippi. On graceviewchurch.org. At graceviewchurch.org. <laughs> Let's hear from Pastor Chris. Going to the Word of God we will start out in John chapter 5. But first, you know, in thinking about the creation... We have this entire understanding of these things that's come through many different phases in human history. Of course we believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That means that there was nothing before God. The creation is a non-ascendient reality made of matter and time and space and lots of other stuff that we don't know what it is. But before that there was personality. God was before all things, not after all things. Now, as you know, a current narrative competing with Christianity in the world says first there was stuff, and the stuff was just there, eh, we don't know. But eventually, if you leave stuff alone long enough, people will start spitting out of it. And that's how we got here. So whatever purpose there is, is what we make for ourselves. In our understanding of these things, God created the universe with a purpose already in mind. And that means that the universe itself, even the dirt on the ground, has a certain dignity and value, a specialness. As you know, at the end of each of those days of creation, God rounded up the day by saying, and it was good. And it was good. And then he made humankind in his own image and likeness, which made every one of us the very image of God, the highest order of creation. And that was the only thing, when he blessed it, he said, very good. And then came Sunday, so he took a break. Because he was tired. No, he wasn't tired. But. So even the orders of creation in those days of six and a day of rest are in the creative week itself. And we find them manifest in our own experience. As I've told you many times, it's not hard to get people to work. Not really. It's hard to get people to rest. Because they're so stressed out about how they're going to get food, and how they're going to pay the rent, and how they're going to take care of these kids, and what they're going to do, and how they're going to do, and all these things pile up on a person, especially superiors in their care of inferiors, to get them to stop and take a break and spend an entire day with the Lord, it's really hard to do. That's why some of the theologians have called it a discipline or a practice more than a gift. But when we wanted to know how much we should rest correspondent to our labor, he doesn't actually give us the option of four days a week of work. He says six days you shall do your labor, and the next day is given to the Lord on it. You shall do no work. Even if you really, really want to. Because that seventh day of the week is a type of Christ to you. And he wants you to know that when your labors in this world are done, that there is rest and peace for your soul. There's an analogy of this in the law of God. and We find this teaching all through the New Testament. You cannot work hard enough or do enough good works or do enough good things to make yourself good enough for God. All the good works in the world will ultimately become a hill of beans before the sin of our corporate mankind. So God sent his son into the world to seek and to save that which lost, to bring peace between man and God so that we don't get there by our goodness, our labors, or our works, but by the work of Jesus Christ. Now we don't want to fall into that weird little thing where we say this, okay, you get in by grace through faith, but you stay in by good works. No, no. It's not that thing. But also, we don't want to get into that thing where you get in through grace by grace through faith, and so there's nothing to do as a Christian. Not that either. It's not that simple. It's more this. Because we've been saved by an alien righteousness, because we've been given the grace of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, because we've been raised into the heavens with him, we live the rest of our life in service to God, not out of slavish fear or because we're going to lose something, but because of the great gratitude and thankfulness that we have for the grace that's been given to us. He gave us something we did not deserve and that we were not owed, and so we lived the rest of our lives giving the same gift to other people. In chapter 5 from verse 19, And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. Now we know this great mystery of the Trinity And it's hard for us all to understand. None of us understand it completely. But we do understand facets of it from the scriptures. We know what it's like to be one person. We don't know what it's like to be three persons but one being. But that's exactly what God is. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The reason that there's diversity in the Trinity even before the beginning of the world is because there's not one person. There are three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there is one being that is God. We are many beings and many persons, and so it's hard for us to understand, but there's no logical contradiction in it. God is just not exactly what we are or made like us. And so what it says there is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all work in concert for your salvation. The Father might have called you and created you, but the Son entered into the world to save you, to suffer and die for you, and the Holy Spirit is that which lives inside you to bring you to spiritual life from spiritual death. Did you know that your resurrection is already absolutely certain and guaranteed because it has already begun? Now, we are not one of those peoples that say there doesn't have to be a resurrection of the physical body from the dead on the last day because we already have the spiritual resurrection in our hearts. The scriptures teach emphatically and clearly and in many places that there will be a resurrection of the dead to new life in new bodies after the likeness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It will be a bodily resurrection, but it begins now as a spiritual resurrection that has already taken place. You were spiritually dead, but now you're spiritually alive. You were spiritually blind, but now you see. Your ears were stopped and now you hear. You were unliving like a stone and now you're alive with flesh and blood. He goes on, the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed, past dense, from death to life. We all know it sounds a little strange that we were born dead. We were born physically alive, but we needed to be born spiritually. There's this entire conversation that happens two chapters earlier... With Nicodemus, where Jesus tells one of the great teachers of Israel, don't you understand? A man has to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Being born once is not enough because sin is already in the world. Now as Christians, we already know and we understand this experience we have of the spirit of God and of faith and of grace and of seeing beauty. It's like coming into the light from a dark room. We didn't really know it was that dark because our eyes had adjusted to the dark. But as soon as you see the light, it's blinding to you. And all of a sudden, all of the features and facets of the world are made plain to you. And you see everything. Where before, now you understand, you weren't really seeing anything. Even when we talk about the creation, it's the same. We love the creation for the sake of God. Because he loves it. Remember this. When Jesus came, it wasn't just to save people. In the world. It was to save the world. Now, I know that we don't use the terms in those ways, but the ancients, they did. He came and bled on the earth, on the ground, to sanctify the entire earth back to God. Not only that, but it talks about him in Corinthians chapter, uh, Colossians chapter 1 as having claimed for himself not just this globe, but the universe. Some of the theologians call this the cosmicness of Christ. You know, uh, we built the James Webb telescope, right? To replace the Hubble telescope that replaced some other telescope that replaces our eyeball. We looked out there and we saw things. We wanted to see them more clear, so we keep building bigger and bigger eyeballs. And now we've got this eyeball that they say is a time machine. It's going to look all the way back to the beginning. I'm making a prediction to you right now it's going to see more dust and more rocks. (laughs) They'll be pretty but they're not going to see something amazingly different from what we've seen before because the universe is not the point of itself. The God that is not a physical God that they're going to look at out there and they're going to find him is the point of all things. And he made this little obscure location of the universe special in that this is the place that he chose to manifest his person and being and create those in his image and likeness and enter into his creation kind of like Jerusalem, right? If you go through the Bible, what seems to be the most important city to God in the whole Bible? Jerusalem. Was it ever the most important city in the world? You go through successive generations and civilizations and Egypt comes and goes and Rome comes and goes. The Assyrians, the Amalekites, they all come and go. Now we just look where they used to be and all we find is dust. But Jerusalem continues. You are a special thing. You are not an accident. You're not from an accidental collocation of atoms in the void. As Carl Sagan said, you know, we're all just stardust. And he said it just like that, too. We're all just stardust. We are not only stardust. The stardust is for us. Not only that, but we are the only thing in the universe that looks out on the universe and observes its beauty. We are the sentient beings that know that we exist in this place and time. And that, if you will, is the image of God. Now some of you have asked me, you know, by that, by that rank that we have in the orders of creation, even above the stars themselves, that do not know that they exist, does that mean that angels are also in the image of God? Well, in some ways they are. It doesn't deny that in the Bible we are the created image of God, but there are other things that also think and also observe and also have conscience. And also make moral decisions. But Jesus Christ entered into the world to seek and to save this thing that we are. And that gives us a very great honor. From verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So none of us have life in ourselves. We receive life from the Father and the Son, but he has the power of life in and of himself. He has eternal, unchanging, self-existent being. Everything you see around you, everything that you experience was caused by something. Even this building was caused by the people that built it. And the materials came from the trees. And the trees grew up from the earth and they absorbed the sun and they sucked in the rain and they became this building. But if you trace them back far enough, eventually you're going to get back to, I don't know what came before this, right? Me and the kids, you know, we watch all these astronomers on YouTube and they try to explain the world. And they always get back to that beginning and they're like, eh? I don't know. They say, well, we looked at the edge of the universe, and that's as far as we can see. Everything seems to be expanding, and some things seem to be moving faster than the speed of light, and yet at the same time, what's beyond that? Well, we don't know. What caused all this? We don't know. Why is there something here instead of nothing? We don't know. But we all know that there has to be something that has the power of being in and of itself, because if there weren't, there would be nothing now, right? Nothing just comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Louan got that immediately. <laughs> but some um, So here he says, verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's go to the next page. Now I know this is a hard teaching, but I can only give you real teaching. I don't think, looking around, I don't think there's anyone in this church I haven't offended yet. I've been here four years. I'm working as fast as I can. But what I want to make sure that is that it's the offense of Scripture and not the offense of Chris, because we've got both around. If it's the offense of Scripture, take it in and let it be good for your soul, that you have seen something in the Word of God that twists you or torques you or wounds you so that it might rebuild you and strengthen you. If God has spoken, let every man be a liar. Here, it's talking about the salvation that comes in the work, person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, when I first came here, one of the things we did was gone, we went through the scope of evangelism and what a church is meant to do. The church is the evangelist. Jesus left people as his ambassadors on earth It's you. To get into all of those subsidiary matters of, well, aren't there some Christians that aren't in the church? Well, sure there are, right? But the normal thing is the church for this purpose because about half of the Bible, half of it is about how to get in and how to get out and how to be saved and how to run the church and how to be the church and its time and place in history. So I'm not saying the building I'm saying the people called by God and ordained to this purpose to be his witness in history. We do that by what we think and by what we do. The way it's talked about in the old confessions, by faith and practice. By believing a true gospel of the resurrection from the dead. But also that we love one another. That we love one another well. And that we love even those that hate us. And that we take care of the poor, and we feed the destitute, and we put shoes on the feet of orphans, that we show the love of Christ through the things that we do in and through the world. Now, I know that you know that you as an individual Christian are called to do those things, but the organization that Jesus ordained for the corporate care of the world is his church. It's his church in history. Uh hundred years from now, how many of you are still going to be here? You know, it's all going up, right? When I was a kid, there weren't many hundred-year-olds around. Now there's tons of them, right? We have better medications. We're all living longer. Our kids today might live to be 110, 120, 130 years old just because they can take care of it. And medical advances are only getting stronger and stronger. But all the rest of us that already have a driver's license... In a hundred years, hopefully they have a picture of us in the hallway, right? (laughs) At the same time, the church will continue through history. We will become a part of something when we leave our bodies behind in this world. We will close our eyes to this world and we will open them in the spiritual realm of God which is located in heaven. We will close our eyes to these people and we will open our eyes to the Lord our God. We will live beyond this life. This life is not the end. This life is merely the preparation. If anything, this life is not even the plant or the flower. It's only the seed. We go through this life as a preparation for the next, which is only more wonderful and more glorious. Here Jesus says in chapter 6, Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that Moses, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. You have to remember in the context here, he had fed the 5,000, and now they came back to him, and it says earlier, they only came for the bread really. That happens at church a lot. If we have a potluck, we'd have twice as many people. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes people are just hungry. In that day, you have to remember, they were under the white hot heat of the persecution of the Romans. They were commonly hungry. They came for the bread. They stayed for the sermon. Uh, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So he's fed their bodies. He didn't neglect He didn't preach the gospel to a starving people. He fed their bodies, but now he wants to give them a deeper spiritual insight if they're able to receive it. In other words, now are you able to go beyond your stomach and get all the way to your heart? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have not seen me, and you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me. But I will raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Notice Jesus is using the emphatic sense. He's saying, I came... Down from heaven. In other words, I might have been born in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, 33 years earlier, but that's not where he originated. That's not where he began. That's not the supernatural story of the Bible. That's the natural story of childbirth. So he pre existed his earthly existence and took on a humanity in order to save us. He didn't need to do it, but he had to find a way to die. It's impossible that God die because he has the power of an imperishable life. But he did take on a humanity and sanctified it and in so doing took our low humanity and raised it up to be seated with him in the heavens. In other words, what Christ has done did not bring us back to the place of Adam before the fall. It brought us up to a higher, more august place than we ever could have arrived at in and of ourselves under our own power or through our own being. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came out from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Their argument is the same argument that people have now when they hear that Jesus is the eternal son of God. It's exactly the same argument. Look, we know he was a man. We've got his genealogy. There's books written about him. Isn't he just a guy? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, they come to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except for him who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's talking about himself there. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. When we get to this bread that we're about to eat here, what he's talking about is if you're not fed by him, you're not fed at all. What's one of the primary facts of living existence? You know, they debate whether or not the virus is like a living thing or is like a little machine. I don't know. I don't get into those conversations. But here's the thing. If it's alive, it eats. That's a rule, right? You guys that are hunters, you go out there, sometimes you eat the bear, sometimes the bear eats you, right? But somebody's feeding If you're alive, you're hungry. If you're alive, you need to be fed. If you're alive, you need to eat. Now, you should be hungry for this meal because this is the one that he ordained to feed you. Now, I know we come from, if you go around this room, we have people from every possible theological background, including other religions, right? But there's this commonness that we were all created in the image and likeness of God. We're all alive and we're born hungry. I want you to embrace your hunger for Christ. You're listening to the ministry of Grace View Church. You've been listening to Pastor Chris at Grace View Church in South Haven, Mississippi. Reach us at graceviewchurch.org. You can reach us at graceviewchurch.org.